As Dr. Holmes said, my assignment today is a little different than the typical preaching in chapel, and uh, I have been asked to talk more about history, and specifically the heritage uh, from which this school has come. And I want to talk about a time period in the early 20th century that was somewhat defining and formative that led to the formation of this school. Now since about the last 200 years, Baptists have been gathering together in various ways in conventions and societies and associations and they have tended to form three kinds of institutions within those frameworks. They have made missions agencies which have been responsible for extending the reach of the gospel overseas and within the United States or England or whatever country is home. They have created publishing houses that have uh, supported the education and discipling of the church members within the Baptist churches. And then they have created schools, colleges, seminaries designed to train the subsequent generations of pastors and leaders. All of these institutions are intended to extend the work of the churches and also have the great side benefit of unifying the churches together into one common purpose. Except when it doesn't unify them together in one common purpose. And as we're going to be exploring today, that unity part doesn't always work the way we sometimes might want it to work. Now, in the early 20th century, portions of the landmark movement, and those of you that have been in Baptist history or are in Baptist, in fact, this week in Baptist history, we're talking about landmarkism, so some of you have just read this. Um, but in the early 20th century, portions of the landmark movement that had been existing somewhat uneasily within the Southern Baptist Convention for about 50 years finally left and split from the Southern Baptist Convention, eventually gathering themselves together into what was called the American Baptist Association. Now, landmarkism was and still is much bigger than just those that left in that split. And because of that, I'm going to refer to them as associational Baptists because there are more landmarkers than this group of associational Baptists, though they are the ones who become the primary heirs of landmarkism. But their distinctive feature was a landmarkism that insisted that the cooperative work of churches needed to be done through associations that were based on church equality and every church would have the same amount of power. Now in the early 20th century though, these associational Baptists struggled to build a cohesive identity through our denominational associations. Our ecclesiology, which emphasized the um, church as the sole source of ecclesiastical authority, also hampered our efforts to do anything outside 
of the local church. So building a missions office, a publications company, colleges, was a great struggle. Jacksonville College was the first institution that was formed in 1899 in this very town. For the first two decades of its existence, Jacksonville College struggled greatly. The financial support from the churches was typically inadequate. The faculty and administration consisted of a revolving door of underpaid professors and presidents, and the school lacked a clear purpose or vision. But after nine years of those struggles, it was donated to the Baptist Missionary Association of Texas in 1908 and thereby became the only school affiliated with the fledgling Associational Baptist movement. This gave the school a base of support, although most of that support consisted of goodwill, which is not quite as useful as money. Um, <coughs> Things finally began to improve at Jacksonville College in 1919 when B.J. Alberton, who was the first graduate of Jacksonville College, became the president of the school. For the next 16 years he served and he gave the school stability and purpose. He set his sights on what was realistically attainable with the resources they had and he turned Jacksonville College into a recognized and respected junior college. And then the Great Depression arrived. Donations dried up. The school was once again on the brink of disaster. Relief finally arrived in 1932 when the, a large endowment from the estate of a wealthy spinster was given to the college. And while the school was grateful for endowment funds, what it really needed was operating funds. If you don't know the difference, you can't spend your endowment money. Um, you can use that endowment money to create operating funds, but you can't spend it. But financial pressures continued to mount, and eventually the administration trustees begin to use parts of the endowment to cover operating expenses. In multiple instances, real estate and stocks owned by the endowment were given to faculty in lieu of back salary that the school could not possibly pay them. If you're ever a trustee or administrator of a school, don't do that. <laughs> All of these kind of financial decisions would eventually lead to some pretty serious problems and questions over the operation of this college, which we'll come back to. Well, Associated Baptists in Texas were the first with a school. Arkansas was not far behind. It was the other state with a fairly large Associational Baptist movement within it. At first, they tried to resuscitate a dying college in far western Arkansas when that failed. In 1919, they established Missionary Baptist College in Sheridan, Arkansas. It was started with a little bit of donations and a bunch of pledges, which is promise of money that might show up. Um, the school started in the Sunday school rooms of First Baptist Church in Sheridan. 
It was always a tough go, although eventually they were able to build a separate building and became a very modest success. To attract more students, they eventually opened a teacher training program that became reasonably successful and very rapidly overshadowed its original purpose of ministerial training. And it is actually for that reason that my great-grandmother went and graduated from Missionary Baptist College back in the late 1920s to be a teacher. And of course then the Great Depression showed up for this school as well. By 1931, the college was financially unsustainable. Many desperate appeals were sent to the churches, but the churches didn't really have any money to give either. By 1933, the school was bankrupt. The state association voted to close the college at the end of the 1934 uh, school year. They sold the real estate and property to pay the debts and they appealed to the churches to send money to pay the remaining salaries of the faculty. They then spent the spring and summer trying to see if they could raise enough money to reopen. They didn't raise enough money to reopen and all those back salaries owed to the faculty never were paid to them. The closure of Missionary Baptist College was instructive for some of the Associational Baptists who were watching. Supporting a school for your denomination is nominally the responsibility of every church. The problem is, when something's everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility. And so a number of Associational Baptists learned that diffused responsibility of Associational ownership would leave schools without a firm foundation. One who took such a message was Conrad Glover, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Sheridan, who had a front row seat for all of this. When it became clear that the college would not reopen, Glover persuaded Benjamin Bogart, who lives in Little Rock, and the undisputed leader of Associational Baptist in Arkansas to open a new school at Bogart's church. And so a few months after the college closed, Antioch Baptist Church in Little Rock opened the Missionary Baptist Seminary. It was initially a very ad hoc affair. Classes met in the Sunday school classrooms, students boarded with church members, and the faculty primarily consisted of unpaid local pastors. That was the seminary. It had no formal connection to any association of churches. It was owned strictly by Antioch Baptist Church, Benjamin Bogard's church. Although other churches were certainly encouraged and welcomed to financially support the new school. The creation of Missionary Baptist Seminary turned out to be an inflection point in the history of Associational Baptists. For the first time, an institution which was intended to serve the entire denomination was owned by one church. Prior to this, such institutions had been owned by the Association of Churches. Unwittingly or not, this change in institutional structure initiated a series of fights among Associational Baptists that ultimately resulted in a split. Several factors may have influenced Glover, Bogard, and others to start this new plan of institutional organization. One that was made much of at the time was the influence of J. Frank Norris and fundamentalist Baptists. 
I don't know if you know who J. Frank Norris is, but he was the pastor of First Baptist Fort Worth, and he was a character. And uh, during the early 1930s, Norris and Bogard were exploring the possibility of attempting to merge Associational Baptists and Fundamentalist Baptists together. In fact, in 1935, J. Frank North even hosted the annual meeting. The national meeting of the American Baptist Association was held at Norris's church in Fort Worth, although ultimately those two movements never came together. Nevertheless, this brief uh, flirtation with Norris provided some exposure to a different model of religious institutions, one that all tied back to direct church ownership of all ministries, which was what Norris was doing. Another thing was that J.R. Graves, who was the, the father of landmarkism, he had this idea in his writings that he because it was the 1800s, he used a Latin phrase, quo delegator non delegatum est. It sounds better when you say it in Latin. Um, but the idea was that what Christ has delegated to the church, which is divine authority on earth, cannot then be re-delegated to any other person or organization. Now what Graves did with that was to argue that it was only the church as a whole that had the authority to receive members, discipline members, or exclude members. They could not delegate that to pastors, committees, or anybody else, which most of us would probably agree with that. But as time went on, people began taking this idea. You can't delegate authority that's been given to you and say, well, wait, wait, why are we delegating authority to have a school? Or why are we delegating authority to have a publishing house? And so if you take that idea and apply it somewhere else, then suddenly you can't delegate authority to a board of trustees from the churches. A final factor that is I think of the greatest significance was landmarkism was not a static thing. It was an evolving thing. In the 1850s, landmarkism uh, under J.R. Graves, J.M. Pendleton, A.C. Dayton, these three men, the triumvirate as they were known of, land, of landmarkism, um, they had a very clear theological program. And it was that the, the sole locus of ecclesiastical authority on earth is the local Baptist church. The only true churches are Baptist churches. The only true ministers are Baptist ministers. The only true baptisms are Baptist baptisms. And that communion should only be offered to Baptists. It was a simple five-point plan. But when you fast forward 30 years to when Graves is an old man, he now has changed up the plan a little bit by then. Uh, by then, you didn't offer communion just to fellow Baptists. You only offered communion to fellow church members. They'd moved from a close communion to a closed communion position. Graves also was very clear that in the Bible, the church described only a local body. There was no universal church, which was something J.M. Pendleton believed in was the universal church. And then he had also added that there was an unbroken succession of Baptist churches from the time of the apostles to the present day. And so landmarkism was um, expanding in its definition. 
15 years later, after Graves had died, landmarkers continued to expand their concept of what it meant to be a landmarker. Specifically, when they took the idea that the local church was the only source of ecclesiastical authority on earth, and they began to apply that to interchurch relationships. And when they did that, things like the Southern Baptist Convention started to look not so good to them. It provided uh, a man by the name of T.P. Crawford, who had been a decades-long missionary to China for the Foreign Mission Board by that point. He came up with this idea called gospel missions, that missionaries should not be appointed by a board, but that missionaries should be appointed solely by churches and directly supported by churches. Eventually, he left the Foreign Mission Board and did just that, as did a number of other missionaries. Meanwhile, the 1890s were a time of significant economic growth in the American South. They were finally coming out of the complete destruction that had occurred during the Civil War, and there was suddenly a little bit more money around. Okay, And Baptists wanted to make sure they applied their money to good uses. And so this led to them looking for different ways to cooperate together and to be more efficient in the way they use their money. And this search for efficiency would ultimately result in the creation of the cooperative program and the creation of the modern Southern Baptist Convention. Yet before we get to that, because that's the 1920s when that happens, it resulted in increasing centralization, which first impacted the state-level conventions. In Texas and Arkansas, though, pushing for centralization encountered some pretty significant opposition from landmarkers. Samuel Hayden in Texas and Benjamin Bogard in Arkansas led these dissident movements within each state. Both of these men were editors of newspapers who were very concerned about the increasing authority of boards and the appearance of something called a denominational executive. Somebody who drew a salary for sitting in an office and telling missionaries what to do. At least that's how they saw it. And not only did they do that, they were paid more than the missionaries to sit in the office and do that. It's often a good way to get people grumpy, economic resentment. Um, <clears throat> by the early 1900s, Hayden in Texas and Bogart in Arkansas had broken off and they eventually coalesced into the Associational Baptist movement in which all interchurch cooperative work must be directly authorized by local churches. And you still see that today. If you're ever wondering why next month a bunch of churches are going to get together and vote on whether Dr. Holmes should still be the president of this place, that's why. We're still doing this. By the 1930s, some were now making the argument that not only must gospel work be authorized by local churches, it must be directly controlled by local churches. And this is where you get into the direct ownership of things. Now even though Benjamin Bogard was not the originator of the idea uh, that a church should own a seminary or college, he quickly became a passionate advocate of it. He contended that the scriptural place to train a man for ministry in a local church, uh, in a local church, was within a local church. 
In fact, he required every one of his students to join his church, Antioch Baptist Church, and attend all the public meetings of that church unless they had a preaching assignment somewhere else. Yet there's one corollary to this argument that if Bogart's school was organized according to scripture, if his school was scriptural, then Jacksonville College was not. That's going to be a problem. Now, for associational Baptists, proper organization, operation of the association is not a matter of efficiency. They proved that 30 years before. But of obedience to the commands of Scripture. And now, there are two groups within associational Baptists contending for which one the New Testament agrees with. And for 15 years, they would struggle for control of the association. The first point of contention occurred not at the schools, but at the publishing house. By the early 1930s, the Great Depression, again, the publishing house was pretty badly in debt. The churches weren't sending enough money. They weren't selling enough Sunday school books. And they were in debt to multiple printing houses. That then led to an audit of the manager of the publishing house. Because when things aren't going well financially, people want answers. And it turned out he wasn't super good at financial accounting. He could have used a little more work on the accounting front. And even though the audit eventually proved that the business manager hadn't actually done anything wrong, technically, um, he still was ultimately fired from his position. During the midst of that particular controversy, Benjamin Bogart, convinced that there was something fishy going on in the publishing house, decided to just start publishing his own Sunday school literature out of his church, which he did. And then he advertised it in his paper for other churches to buy it as well. He set up his own competing publishing house. This definitely colored the perception of what other people thought about what Benjamin Bogart was doing. He now had created a seminary and a publishing house out of his church. This controversy also earned Benjamin Bogart the undying enmity of one D.N. Jackson, whose picture you can see right outside the door as you walk back to class. He was the son-in-law of the disgraced publication's manager, and he was also a newspaper editor. And he took to regularly blasting Benjamin Bogart in his newspaper. Bogart, not exactly a shrinking Bible himself, returned fire as good as he took it. And these two men began a very personal and very public feud that would continue for over a decade. Contention also arose when Baptists decided to open a new school in South Arkansas. Columbia Baptist Bible School was opened in Magnolia, right next door to what was then known as Magnolia State Agricultural and Mechanical College, now known as Southern Arkansas University. This Bible school was intended to be an adjunct to the state school. Men who were preparing for ministry could go get their general education at the state school and their ministerial education at the Bible school. And those who didn't want a college degree could just take Bible classes. This new school was clearly intended to compete with Bogard's Missionary Baptist Seminary, and Bogard knew it. 
and he immediately took to the pages of his newspaper proclaiming that those who went to Columbia Bible School would be exposed to the poison of evolution over at the state school next door. The supporters fought back, arguing that, well, we're at least going to train them to answer the arguments of evolution at our school instead of trying to pretend such ideas don't exist. A final battle, this occurs in Texas, we almost got to this at the beginning, we referenced this, when B.J. Albritton stepped down as president of Jacksonville College in 1937, questions began to be raised about the financial management. Remember the part where they're spending the endowment? Yeah, uh, that part, the part you're not supposed to do. Um, eventually they decide to have an audit and of course when you have an audit it'll uncover the fact that you spent endowment money on operating expenses and you're not supposed to do that. Um, that finally all got brought to the BMA of Texas meeting in 1940 where the auditor's report was brought to the association and the association voted not to accept the auditor's report and then immediately elected B.J. Alberton as president of the state association. Some people were upset about that as you might imagine. Clearly some churches were taking the argument that he did what he had to do to keep the school alive and others were saying, yeah, but he did unethical things to keep the school alive. And they were outraged that the majority of the churches were unwilling to hold him or the college accountable for what had happened. These financial struggles in the 1930s at the publishing house in Jacksonville College and Missionary Baptist College had different effects on these rapidly polarizing camps within the American Baptist Association. For those who supported direct church ownership, these controversies proved that it was difficult, sometimes even impossible, to hold jointly owned institutions accountable. The churches nominally owned them, but the churches couldn't hold them accountable. Therefore, it was best to only support institutions accountable to a particular local church. Those who supported joint ownership of institutions, they looked at what Bogard was doing, where he opened a school and a publishing ministry at his church, and it proved to them that Bogard and his allies would stop at nothing to try to undermine and destroy the already existing institutions. And others were very openly worried that one pastor and one church having so much influence in the denomination would ultimately be harmful to the denomination. They feared that Benjamin Bogard would become like J. Frank Norris. This led to a coalescing group that believed it was necessary to neutralize Benjamin Bogard's influence in the association. That would be no small feat because he had been shepherding the Associational Baptist movement for 40 years. He would have to be defeated. There would have to be a coup. This struggle had to be put on hold because World War II happened. And uh, the, the restrictions that occurred because of the war meant that it was very difficult to hold statewide or national meetings. The schools almost shut up because of the war, although they kept going on a very shoestring basis. But finally the war ended 
And when those better days came, divisiveness rapidly re-emerged. Jacksonville College had a young new president, Gerald Keller. You may have met his son-in-law. He's a professor here. And he was an ardent advocate of joint ownership of schools. When Gerald Keller discovered that Jacksonville College's Bible teacher was not, he fired him. Predictably causing some outrage in certain corners. In fact, the local the controversy became so heated that when the Cherokee Baptist Association, the local association right here, when they met, they kicked out the church pastored by the Bible, the now fired Bible teacher accusing him of breaking fellowship. A few weeks later, the State Association also voted to exclude the same church, arguing that if you weren't in fellowship with your local association, you weren't in fellowship with the State Association either. By now, it was clear that the supporters of joint ownership of schools were ascendant in Texas. They would continue their war of words in the newspapers, but those who argued for direct ownership of schools would coalesce around A.J. Kirkland, who pastored a church in Henderson, Texas, which is 30 miles east of here, and they would eventually, in his church, open Texas Baptist Institute, which is still there, intending for it to compete with Jacksonville College. By 1949, the churches in the BMA of Texas had grown tired of the steady attacks on Jacksonville College and their associational work. And in their annual meeting, they adopted a resolution that those who were opposing the association or its institutions were out of fellowship with the association and therefore were excluded from its membership. A.J. Kirkland and his supporters walked out of the meeting never to return. Remarkably, this is almost exactly what the Baptist Journal Convention of Texas did to Sam Hayden back in the 1890s. We're repeating things. During those same years, though, the group ascendant in Texas were openly condemning Benjamin Bogard and Missionary Baptist Seminary. They were using words like Hitlerite, and dictatorship to describe him. They sought to convince Associational Baptists that Bogart and the seminary were attempting to dominate and control the National Association. Eventually, a plan was developed to nullify Bogart's influence. The first step in 1947, Jacksonville College formed a seminary division that would directly compete with the Little Rock Seminary. Now, there would be two seminaries, one owned by a church and one owned by the BMA of Texas. To make the point that the new Jacksonville College Seminary would serve the entire association, they began opening extension centers. They first opened one in 1949 in Dallas. In 1950, January 1950, they opened one in Little Rock, Arkansas, literally blocks from Bogart's Seminary. Gerald Keller was a little spicy back in the 1940s. Uh, <clears throat> the second part of that plan was to diminish the influence Bogart was believed to have through the students at his seminary. Though all the students at Bogart's seminary had to be members of Bogart's church, many of them also served as pastors of quarter-time and half-time churches in Arkansas. Quarter-time churches meet, have preaching once a month. Half-time churches have preaching twice a month. And when associational meetings were held, 
these students would go as representatives of the churches they pastored even though they were all technically members of Bogard's church. This convinced people that Bogard had excessive influence in the association. His church was in fact overrepresented in the voting. They sought to eliminate this possibility by amending the constitution of the National Association so that every messenger must be a member of the church they represent. This was a bold attempt at political power by disenfranchising certain messengers. In 1949, that attempt got tabled. There were pleas for peace and Christian fraternity. And then by 1950, it was clear that there would be no peace. A split would occur. A split had already occurred months before in Texas. The only remaining question was when they all got to Florida, a place way far away from where most associational Baptist churches were, who would have the majority? Within minutes of the meeting opening, it became clear that the advocates of direct church ownership had a very slim majority, but their majority held. Eventually, the uh, supporters of joint ownership of institutions walked out of the meeting, held a late-night open-air meeting on the banks of Lake Mirror, and made plans to form a new association, which we now know as the Baptist Missionary Association of America. And Jacksonville College Seminary, you now know as the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. You see, within the framework of landmarkism, the best way to operate a seminary, publishing house, a college, was not a question of efficiency. It was always a question of faithfulness to the teachings of Scripture. And those who fought and eventually split the association believed they were contending for the truth with a capital T. Now, are there any lessons we could take from this? Well, a few. One is that when we're cooperating together and churches are joining together, things that would seem to not matter very much become difficult to overlook. There are some things that to work together, you have to do it one way or the other. And these things may not seem particularly significant to outsiders, but to insiders they begin to loom large. And you will find these things, whether in your church, your association, your convention, whatever it is, there are some things that will take on outsized influence, influence that an outside observer will just wonder what we're fighting about exactly. We have many times in late 20th century evangelicalism or early 21st century Calvinism pretended that some of these things don't matter, that we can just all get along. But bluntly, we're not doing a terribly good job of always just all getting along. Because some of these things that seem quite secondary become quite forceful when we try to all get together. Another lesson that we could take from Benjamin Bogard, Dean Jackson, some of these others, is a lot of these things probably could have been resolved. Except for this thing called pride. Pride is a very powerful force, and none of us are immune from it. 
All of these men had done good and faithful things for decades of ministry. But they did not much like being questioned. And they certainly did not like being opposed. And while we may not be exactly having the same struggles they had in the early 20th century, we have different struggles, but we are not immune from becoming prideful in those struggles. From convincing ourselves that we are right and everybody else is wrong. Or that there is only one possible way to do things. We can all be subject to the reality of pride. And we all need to live our lives before God in attempts to humility. In attempt to live out Philippians 2 that have the mind of Christ in us and regard others as better than ourselves. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we come before you. Father, I, I thank you for our missionary Baptist forefathers. Um, we agree on some things. We don't always agree with everything they did. But Lord, I'm thankful to, to be a part of the movement that they, they birthed. And I thank you for this seminary that came out of that movement. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful stewards of what we have been given, whatever that is, whether that is the stewardship of a school or the stewardship of a congregation or other forms of ministry, or stewardship of our families, or whatever you have given to us in this life to care for, that we would be faithful to you as we seek to lead and guide in the things you have granted to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remain humbly your servants as we seek to do that. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.